This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Dick. We are just under six months out from this year's 2022 midterm congressional campaign. And as we often do here at CQ Roll Call, we look at who are the most vulnerable incumbents, people who have the biggest chance of not coming back in the new Congress for a variety of reasons. We tend to focus on the incumbents because those are the people who usually make up a lot of our readership. And also it gives us a little bit of a unique take on some of the dynamics more than just whether a a seat will flip itself. Here to talk about this and more is our entire political team, uh, minus the editor, Herb Jackson, but who needs him? Herb gets plenty of attention as it is. Uh, We're going to talk to the real stars of the political team, and that's Kate Ackley, Mary Ellen McIntyre, and Stephanie Aiken. Welcome all. Great to be with you. Let's start with talking about the most vulnerable senators. The Senate is evenly divided at 50-50. Uh, so really, every quite literally, every race does count uh, in, in this. Let's start with uh, who the most vulnerable Democratic incumbents in the Senate are. Who wants to start off the, uh, the sweepstakes here about these the vulnerable Democrats that you all have been watching? Um, I can start if you want. We can look at, uh, you wanted to look at number one is uh, Senator Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada. She's a Democrat. I should state this is Kate Ackley speaking for for those that, those out there uh, in, uh, an auditory medium. That's Kate Ackley, our senior uh, writer at the politics team. And uh, yes, start us off, Kate, uh, with the vulnerable Democrats. And you started with Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada. Yeah, she's number one on our list overall of vulner- most vulnerable Senate incumbents. And um, you know, we we were looking at things like the environment, the headwinds that Democrats are facing, and you know. Nevada has sort of a lot of things going on that's not so good for Democrats. When you look at it's a younger population, it, there's a large number of um, Hispanic voters. And we've seen, at least in some polling um, people, and she, you know, she's a first Latina senator, but seen a lot of Hispanic voters sort of migrate away from the Democratic Party um, and to Republicans. So those kinds of factors sort of all went in to uh, to putting her at the top of the list. As you said, she's, Kate, she's the first uh, Latina elected to the Senate. She also previously ran the Democrats' uh, senatorial campaign committee. So she knows kind of what it takes to to be up against the uh, the winds of, a, of when things are kind of going against you. And again, Nevada is one of these Swing, swing states. I mean, Hillary Clinton won it in 2016, and then Joe Biden won it in 2020, but it, it's always close. Right. It's definitely still kind of in that swing category. And this year, I think, you know, given the headwinds for Democrats, um, it seems like it's going to be an uphill fight. You know, the, the, it seems like all of Nevada <laughs> uh, is is a one big swing district. It seems, you know, at the statewide level, we've got this contest. We'll talk about you know, the, the House incumbents in, in a little bit, but there are a lot of races that we're, we're watching. And Nevada, as usual, is just, you know, draws a lot of interest. 
let's talk about I, I feel like pairing the two of them because they're both they're two Democrats who won in swing districts. They're both real good candidates. They both raise a lot of money and they they won in special elections uh, in in 2020. And now they're uh, facing the voters again for for full terms. And that's Raphael Warnock, who won in Georgia and Mark Kelly in Arizona. Who uh, who wants to talk about Senators Warnock and Kelly? Well, I can I can talk about Senator Warnock, but I think also it, it might be helpful to kind of take a step back and look big picture at the map here and what we're talking about. And Warnock is a, a good example of that because um, Democrats' majority in the Senate is is really razor thin, and it all um, hangs uh, in part on on Warnock and um, his colleague from Georgia, John Ossoff, who won. Um, runoff elections in Georgia in um, in the end of 2020. Um, Warnock won a, a, a special election, so he has to run again. Um, you know, less than a year later, um, his seat's in play, and a lot of the things that that led to his victory in 2020 don't exist anymore. Um, you know, there's not the um, the national focus on his race that there was in 2020 and 2020 Democrats all over the map really consolidated around getting him and Ossoff elected. Um, and Georgia is, is really, it, it's a, it's a tough state still, uh, you know, even though Democrats won it in 2020 and, and you're seeing that and a lot of the, the focus on rates, all, races all the way down the ballot there this time around as former president Trump has also put his focus on, on Georgia and as kind of the, the center of his efforts to, to prove his, um, or to, to, um, litigate his, uh, false claims of election fraud in, in 2020. Former President Trump has weighed in in this race. He's um, endorsed one of Warnock's challengers. Um, he's a former NFL star, Herschel Walker, who you know, Republicans would say is still extremely popular in the state. But Walker <laughs> has some of his own issues, as we've seen in a couple of other um, Republican primaries this cycle. Um, he's got some past domestic violence allegations, some um, problems with his past businesses that have come up in a pretty competitive Republican primary. And um, Democrats see that as something that could make him potentially vulnerable in a general election um, when it looks like he's probably going to get the, the Republican nomination there. Yeah. And, and Stephanie, I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it was the, the both Ossoff and Warnock came to office same time. They were on the same ballot in runoffs. In 2021, Trump made a big deal, rallied down there. And it's it's not that, you know, the, I mean, the, obviously, you know, dynamics shift on, on the ground, but we we don't have that same level of intensity, as you say, with the Democrats, uh, with with this, just this race, you know, like focused on, on Warnock. And, you know, we'll find out who his challenger is, whether it's Walker or somebody else after the Georgia primary later this month. Yeah. Um, all right. So that those are kind of like some of the more vulnerable Democrats, like at, at that level in, in some of those swing districts. Well, there's another one that I'd like to get to shortly, but I feel like, uh, you know, we, we should we should mention, you know, one of the Republicans who is considered a vulnerable Senate incumbent. He seems to defy some of the dynamics that we're seeing, uh, which is that he is I mean, he is in a swing state. Uh, and that's Ron Johnson. He's a Republican incumbent in Wisconsin. But you would think that all of the all of the trends, all the things working in Republicans' favor would work in his favor also. Uh, he's going for a third term. Why is he uh, Why is he caught up in the most vulnerable uh, list that we have compiled here? 
I can talk about that race too. Um, Ron Johnson is, um, you know, one of the only um, incumbents um, and Republicans in a competitive seat this cycle who's in a state that Biden won. He won it by a very, very narrow margin, um, but Wisconsin did vote for Biden in 2020. And Johnson is someone who, you know, he came to, he was elected in, in 2010 as kind of like a, a Tea Party stalwart. Um, he was somebody who kind of promoted his uh, business credentials. Um, and since then, Democrats would argue that he's lost touch with that and has really um, grabbed on to his allegiance to former President Trump. Um, he's had some controversial comments um, in you know the past year, calling into question the efficacy of the COVID vaccine, um, really um, grabbing on to theories of election fraud in 2020, um, embracing January 6th. And those are things that um, could potentially make him vulnerable in a state that that did vote for Democrats, even though the national climate in general is, is pretty tough for them. Um, Democrats are hoping that, um, especially suburban and voters in a state like Wisconsin wouldn't have a problem with that. Right. Uh, I should also say, though, that, that Johnson has, um, he's uh, had a pretty good fundraising quarter um, and uh, he's raising a lot of money um, and he is taking the, the threat pretty seriously. So I, I think um, Republicans feel fairly good about, about his position there. He has raised money, but it not, it's not Mark Kelly or Raphael Warnock money <laughs> by, any, by any stretch of the imagination. I think that the two of them combined for $25 million in the first quarter. Is that right? I, I seem to recall that's about that. So Mary Ellen, uh, you're you're a uh, covering the New Hampshire races, and that sort of rounds out, I think, one of the more vulnerable Democrats, too. Uh, that's Maggie Hassan, who's a former governor uh, up there. She's seeking a second term. And uh, like the you know, New Hampshire is one of those perennial swing states. It always seems to kind of uh, follow where the national uh, you know trends are going. Why is Maggie Hassan uh, vulnerable in in this case? I think she's vulnerable for you know a few different reasons. One, New Hampshire always being a swing state. She beat um, former Republican Senator Kelly Ayotte. Um, by I think less than a thousand points in 2016, so it was a close race then. Thousand votes, no, it's not not points. A thousand points votes. would be a real landslide. <laughs> oh God! Apparently, I've got sports on my mind. Um, a thousand <laughs> votes, as you say, um, in 2016. Um, she's someone whose favor unfavorable numbers have been higher lately than her favorability numbers, and Joe Biden's favorability in the state has gone down. Um, in the last year in the state. So that's something that's also working against her. Um, what makes her maybe a little bit less vulnerable than some of the other Senate Democrats that we have talked about is that she really benefits from the state's popular Republican governor, Chris Sununu, deciding that he was not going to run for the seat, a decision he made about six months ago, um, and really cl- kind of cleared the field for, okay, who are the next Republicans in the state to run against her? So there are several candidates that are you know, facing off. It's a late primary, not until September. So there's a lot of time for things to develop here. But she's probably facing, you know, kind of three main candidates at this point, the state senator, Chuck Morris, the Londonderry, former Londonderry town manager, Kevin Smith, and retired army officer, brigadier general, Don Bolduck, who um, ran in the primary last cycle to run off against, uh, to face Gene Shaheen, did not win that primary. So he was not on the November ballot. 
all three of these men are, you know, much less well known. They have not had the success in raising money that the Hassan campaign has had. So she's a little bit less vulnerable at this point than those. But I think Republicans still say that she's not a very popular senator and they are confident that they will be able to flip the seat with any of those candidates at this point. Before we turn our house, our, our attention to the House of Vulnerables, I, I did want to mention just two kind of odd, um, odd races that have that have taken shape uh, among two Republican incumbents, and um, you know, it, it really interesting to see the way that these have developed. One is Lisa Murkowski uh, in Alaska, uh, who has has you know sort of invited the ire of former President Trump, you know, for. Uh, voting against him in, in during impeachment, and also, um, you know, sort of, sort of stating that like there is no room for insurrection in the Capitol and so forth. Thing, things like that that uh, tend to to really tick uh, Trump off. Uh, and then Mike Lee, uh, who has has been one of the biggest Trump apologists and 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 supporters uh, in 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 the last few years, and and the sort of weird election dynamics that he's facing as as a potential vulnerable. Let's let's start with Murkowski. Her vulnerability is primarily stems from the you know the, the the fact that she's stood up to Trump, but she's also protected a little bit from this primary system that they have that they're trying out in Alaska. Who uh, who wants to talk about Murkowski's race? Well, you know, first of all, we can't ever really count her out. She won a write-in campaign in twenty twenty in twenty ten. Uh, so this probably isn't even going to be her toughest race, but it, it is a real race in September, in August, uh, there's going to be a, an all party primary that she will face competition from uh, a bunch of people, including a candidate that's uh, another Republican that Trump has endorsed. Um, but it, they'll take the top four and then they'll go to the, the election day and they're doing ranked choice voting. So people can say, these are my top candidates. And, you know, insiders sort of think that this will benefit her. This will benefit Murkowski. Um, right. But but it is, you know, she has a real challenge. She has, um, you know, we'll see how much Trump decides to, to spend or to if he's going to go to Alaska or, you know, whatever. Um, but but it is a it is a real race and she's taking it seriously um, the, the, the party committees and the super PACs that are, you know, affiliated with, um, Senate Republican leadership, taking it seriously, spending money, there, reserving money, um, for that race. So, you know, it's worth keeping an eye on. And, and Mike Lee, I mean, he has the opposite, you know, sort of profile of Lisa Murkowski. He's, uh, been, you know, pretty supportive of or the former president, uh, Donald Trump, uh, and Utah is about as Republican a state as you can get. I mean, it's 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 not it's not Wyoming, uh, but but it, it's pretty close. So why is Mike Lee potentially vulnerable? Well, Mike Lee has a couple of challengers inside his own party. He will have a primary um, where, you know, we've seen some recent polling. He looks like he's double digits ahead of his. He's got two challengers in, in the Republican Party. Um, so he's likely to win renomination, um, but that's not his only hurdle. He also is facing Evan McMullen, who's a former Republican, an anti-Trump candidate, um, who actually ran as an independent um, presidential candidate in 2016 against Trump. Um, and so McMullen has 
basically what happened is the Democrats in Utah, and there are some Democrats in Utah, but they decided they weren't even going to field a candidate uh, to challenge, um, you know, to, as a Senate candidate. And so they basically backed McMullen, um, right. who's running as an independent, but is a former Republican. So, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on. I think, you know, people in the state are, are taking this race seriously. It's not likely to flip to the Democrats. In fact, it's basically no way going to flip to the Democrats. But it's worth watching. He's got this uh, primary and then he's got to face McMullen. Um, so he's, he's kind of got it from a few different fronts, all because they're saying he's too cozy with Trump. And we've seen, too, that a Republican who isn't necessarily in lockstep with Trump, Mitt Romney, uh, is the other senator from, from Utah. Now, Romney, you know, he's, he's uh, up, up for re-election in two years. We'll see what happens with, with his race. But there, there's room uh, for, for somebody uh, that doesn't fit Mike Lee's profile, <laughs> to, to say it in a really strange fashion. Uh, okay, um, there is a lot more to the most vulnerables in the Senate. And again, we're just focusing for our purposes on the incumbents. Uh, there are a couple of of uh, crazy open seat races that we are also be covering uh, for for roll call. Uh, but we're we're not going to talk about those uh, in this podcast. That'll that'll be a podcast for another time. We want to focus on our our sort of franchise of uh, most vulnerable incumbents. So let's talk about the House. I mean, the House is not split 50-50, but it might as well be <laughs> in, in in some ways. I mean, there is a uh, Democrats have a, a a five seat cushion, which is among the smallest in in recent history. There's there just haven't been that many times where you know the the the, the margins are this close. Uh, that it kind of go, went against historical trends. A lot of people in 2020 were expecting Democrats to add to their majority. Instead, they lost. 13 seats, uh, which puts them in this position of, uh, you know, in, you know, midterms, first midterm for a, a president's party is usually not kind uh, to that party. Uh, but there are a mix of people who are vulnerable, a mix of incumbents who are vulnerable for a variety of reasons. Uh, let, let's start with some of the Democrats uh, who are vulnerable simply because they're Democrats, uh, because they're, they're either running in swing districts or they're running in districts that uh, voted uh, for for Donald Trump in 2020. I can start and talk about some of those. You have um, a couple of a couple of Democrats that we're talking about here are Tom Malinowski in New Jersey and Jared Golden in Maine. Um, both of their redrawn districts um, would have gone for Trump in the 2020 election. Again, it's a redistricting year, so there's new districts here, um, especially more so in Tom Malinowski's case. Um, new voters that they're introducing themselves to, that kind of thing. And these are just tough, going to be tough districts for both of these, both of these candidates. And I think, you know, Democrats argue that these are good battle-tested candidates who have run close races before. And I will say that there are, for a variety of reasons, a lot of other Democrats who fall into this party that aren't specifically on this list at this time. And they say, you know, they've run tight races before, they've been on the vulnerable list before, and they've won. They can do it again. Um, Tom Malinowski in particular currently has a really big fundraising advantage over his likely Republican opponent, Tom Kane Jr. in New Jersey. But Republicans just sort of say, you know, the headwinds are against them. We have these good candidates who are also running, um, Tom, like I said, Tom Kane Jr. in New Jersey. And then former Congressman Bruce Poliquin is running again against Jared Golden this year. So 
they are saying we also have experienced candidates that are coming out and the headwinds are against Democrats are just too strong. We're going to flip these seats. So like I said, there's a lot of Democrats that could fall into that category, but these are two that are especially vulnerable. And and again, more weird um, rank choice voting thing in Maine, uh, you know, Golden, you know, sort of uh, was was able to take advantage of the, you know, uh, to, to come out ahead in his reelection race because of rank choice vet- voting. Uh, we'll see if, uh, if he can replicate that or if the district is, as you said, just kind of too different uh, for him to to pull ahead of Poliquin. I also just note that like Poliquin is a former member that the Golden Beat and he's, you know, run now and wants to come back to Washington. Uh, and then we've also got, uh, you know, Tom Kane uh, Jr., who is, you know, is, is this almost a almost a perennial candidate at this point, I feel, <laughs> in, in New Jersey. And just seems like it it belies the this idea that that people dislike uh, Washington because it seems like a lot of them just can't wait to get back here. <laughs> yeah, agree. You've got a lot of a lot of cases of people who have run previously and are now running again or have previously been in Congress and are trying to get back this this cycle. Yeah. All right. And then there's also, you know, there's some there's some vulnerable there's a, there's in particular there's a vulnerable democrat uh who faces a primary challenge. This isn't uh as as much of a um a a factor of the you know, that he's in a Trump district or in a district that is where he has to run against the national headwinds. Uh, but he has he is facing a very tough uh, runoff in a primary, and that's Henry Cuellar uh, in in Texas. Uh, he is 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 got a uh, runoff that he is facing. Why? Why is Cuellar uh, vulnerable in, in this case? Because in, in some ways, his, his I believe his, his district may be a teeny bit safer even uh, because of the kind of where the Texas legislature drew the districts, uh, it seemed to just sort of uh, lock in the incumbents a little bit there. Why is he, why is Henry Cuellar uh, vulnerable? Well, Henry Cuellar is someone that um, progressive Democrats have really hoped to beat in the last couple of cycles when they really had, um, you could say they had a lot more energy working in their favor than they do now. Um, He's facing the same um, primary challenge that he did in 2020, um, an immigration attorney named Jessica Cisnernos. She's pushed him into a runoff this time. And, um, you know, part of that is that uh, Cuellar, he's he's one of the most conservative Democrats in the House, but he's also um, under a little bit of a cloud this time around um, because of an FBI investigation. There was a raid of his house and his... um, district offices um, right before um, the the primary date a couple of months ago. Um, Cuellar has since said that he's been informed that he's not a target of that investi- investigation, but still the optics just don't look very good. And Cisneros has kind of seized on that. And now um, with the, you know, the possibility that Roe versus Wade could be overturned, Cuellar, you know, up until this point has had the support of um, Democrat Democratic leadership in Washington, um, but he's um, the only Democrat left in the House who historically has opposed abortion rights, and a lot of abortion rights activists and Democrats on on um, not even on the left are really pressuring the party to to strip him of that support. And um, the party hasn't responded yet, but that you know those kinds of things combined are making it really tough treading for him 
And, um, you know, even if he does make it through this primary, then he's going to have to face a Republican. Um, his district is right on um, the South Texas border in the Rio Grande Valley. It's a district where Republicans have put a lot of resources um, in recent cycles into um, organizing and motivating Latino um, voters. And they're re really looking to show um, that that is paid off. And um, the best way to do that would be by flipping that seat. So that's a race. If, if we see um, actually, either of them make it through the, the primary, but Cuellar especially, you know, Republicans are really going to be looking to um, to get a win there. Okay. On, on the other side of the, uh, the partisan ledger, we've got a, a couple of uh, Republican uh, incumbents who are in danger, and most notably, the, the, uh, the one of the chief antagonists of former President Donald Trump, and that's Liz Cheney in Wyoming. Uh, Cheney has been unapologetic in her criticism of of Trump, particularly for his role in the January six insurrection. She's the vice chair of the Select Committee investigating January six, and she uh, she she is. I mean, th this this is a seat that will be Republican regardless uh, of who wins the primary, but she is uh, among the most vulnerable in incumbents in this cycle. Uh, who wants to talk about Liz Cheney? I can talk about Liz Cheney. Um, you know, we're as we're speaking right now, we're at the beginning of what's going to be a very um, kind of rapid fire series of, of primaries that's really going to decide an outstanding question for the Republican Party, and that's how much hold does Donald Trump still have over the party and um, over its more right-leaning voters who are the ones who come out in primaries. Um, and Trump has really um, made a point of targeting um, House members who have challenged him, um, especially the 10 um, Republicans who um, voted to impeach him in his second impeachment trial after the January 6th um, attacks on the Capitol. Um, a lot of those Republicans have retired. There's only a couple left. And Liz Cheney has really been um, the most public face of that group. She's somebody who has a very high profile in the party before all of this. She was um, the highest ranking woman in um, Republican leadership. Um, she was stripped of that post after um, her impeachment vote and after Trump uh, came out against her. He's um, he's backed um, one of her primary challengers, um, Harriet Hegelman, who's an attorney, um, and also Kevin McCarthy, the Republican House leader, has, has backed um, Cheney's challenger and a lot of other members of Republican, you know, national Republican leadership. Um, so Cheney really has a lot of factors lined up against her. But really, the open question is, how much are voters in, in Wyoming and in Wyoming Republican Party primaries going to respond to that? Um, she's somebody who has a, still has a very powerful name in Wyoming. And it's, it's an open question um, how much um, Wyoming voters are, are really Trump voters and how much um, they've just been historically Republican voters. And that's something that we're going to see here in a, in a couple um, actually, when is that primary? I'm, I was going to say a couple of weeks. I, I don't have the date right in front of me. But anyway, that's something that we're watching for right. sure. Yeah. And and I, I should note, too, that there are a couple more of the uh, Republicans who are still in the House, still running for reelection, who voted um, you know, the, to, to impeach Trump are are among the, the folks on your list. And that's one is Peter Meijer in Michigan uh, and another is Tom Rice in 
uh, in in uh, South Carolina for and and again the the kind of the dynamics are very different, right? I mean, Rice uh, is in a district that is solidly Republican, but he has to get through a uh, a competitive primary uh, for for somebody who is you know vowed more fealty uh, to to Trump, and uh, and Miger is just in a very classic kind of. You know, I mean, he has to get through a primary, but then he's also, I mean, Michigan can be uh, very swingy uh, in, in some of these districts. So it's, it's uh, the, the individual races do matter, but they're the, the, the issue of them, you know, being, you know, the, the field, the question of their fealty to Trump seems to be a, among the biggest factors weighing in here. Um, it's, it's always interesting just to see how, like, why some people are, uh, vulnerable and why some aren't, you know, for some of these same topics. But I want to end with somebody that I feel like he really almost has no business being vulnerable for the reasons that we've talked about that, uh, you know, he, he is, uh, he's not in a swing district. Uh, He is pledged fealty to Trump. Uh, He's a Republican, uh, but he's just a a rather unique individual. And that's one Madison Cawthorn, freshman uh, Republican rep from North Carolina, We've saved him for last. Uh, who wants to talk about our cocaine-fueled orgy, uh, bring guns to the airport, uh, gets caught for speeding all the time, and may have ethics problems, uh, Congressman? <laughs> I think I think that's one that you know is will be really interesting to see how it plays out ultimately, and we won't have to wait long. The North Carolina primary is next Tuesday. Matt, this case is really interesting. As you noted, Madison Cawthorn has been sort of bringing a all over the news <laughs> every few days, if every few hours, some days it seems for the last few weeks. Um, and to your point on, you know, he's someone who is a sort of a surprise to be on this list. We've spoken to a lot of people who have sort of said his vulnerabilities are things that he has really brought on himself. Um, but some of his vulnerability and the fact that he has, you know, quite as many primary challengers as he does stems back a while back. Um, North Carolina, like many, many states, um, has gone through sort of several different proposed maps in the redistricting process leading up to this election cycle. Under an earlier map, he initially said he was going to run in a different district than he's currently representing. And that map, you know, went through the legal process, was not the final map. And he sort of ended up having to come back to the 11th district, which is, you know, generally the same district that he's currently representing. And in that time, he'd attracted several different people who said that they wanted to run, including State Senator Chuck Edwards, who is likely the person that if Madison Cawthorn is going to be be in a primary, could beat him. But to your point, this is a really red district. And Madison Cawthorn is, you know, a Trump guy, really MAGA. And so we'll see how much these various scandals and, you know, bringing a gun to a TSA checkpoint and everything of the last few weeks really, really catches up with him. Um, One thing that's working in his favor is that to avoid a runoff in North Carolina, you only need to get 30 percent of the vote. Um, (laughs) So that's a lower threshold that might make it easier for him to be reelected. But like I said, we're going to know pretty soon. Yeah. And and again, this is just I mean, in not not to. Uh, belittle like politics, uh, but this is just one of those like dream races. I mean, like it, it, in some ways, this is just like it, this is a lot of fun to cover this, and and it, that sounds bad because it's just it's so crazy, and it's like okay, this is a person who is a government official who's you know should know the law about 
say speeding or bringing guns to airports or things like that. But uh, he's he's just really brought on a lot of this himself, and it's uh, you know this is one of those things that is never never boring. Um, and it sounds like he's made it through some of the there were some legal challenges. Some people were trying to challenge his just his status on the ballot itself saying that he, you know, because he supported January 6th, that made him uh, disqualified. But it doesn't sound like that is the uh, biggest problem he has. The biggest problem he has is just, can he, can he clear 30% uh, against a big field? And you never know uh, these 30% is not that much in the grand scheme of things. Well, Mary Ellen, Stephanie, Kate, thank you so much for uh, running through the uh, most vulnerable incumbents in the in the House and Senate. For our listeners, you can just go to rollcall.com for the full list uh, with its rankings. Uh, we didn't want to give away the whole store here with the podcast, so we want you to want you to read those stories and read the write-ups uh, that Team Politics here uh, has uh, delivered on each one of these incumbents. And uh, we look forward to continuing to evaluate this uh, three months out and then uh, right before the election. So we'll we'll have you back on Political Theater to, uh, to to go through some of this. Thanks again for being on the on the show. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having us. 